good morning, Faith Bridge. How's everyone doing? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Michigan is going to be in the national championship game. We believe it already. Oh, oh. All right, all right. Okay, okay. I see how it is. The national championship game is January 8th in Houston. Maybe it will be Texas and Michigan. We'll see. We'll see. You don't care. You don't care at all. Wow. All right. Well, maybe you care about a Bible. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and some of my favorite ushers on the planet would love to give you one. Know your audience, Steve. Know your audience. <laughs> Today we kick off Advent. If you are unfamiliar what Advent is, um, it's, it means the arrival. It's the sense of where we, as a church, we celebrate the first coming of Christ, his arrival. And also at the same time, we live with this sense of anticipation for his second coming. We remember and we anticipate. We remember his arrival, we anticipate his coming arrival, and yet we hold both. And for some of us, we often think about Advent as just a season, but it's more than that. It's a season where we remember God's faithfulness, his goodness, and we also look ahead. And what this whole next series leading us into our Christmas services is all about helping us as a church receive the actual gift of Christmas. Now, whenever you look at the scriptures, you look at the Old Testament, and honestly, for the next four hours and 32 minutes, I really want to break this book down for you. Um, but when you look at the Old Testament, you, you'll see this question. This question that people really, really want to know, and, and, and here it is. It's, it's a simple question. What is God like? like what, what is God like? And I think if I were to ask any of you, some of you would say, oh, he's kind. God is love. We, we have all of these kind of words at which we use, but for the, think about if you were living in the days of the Old Testament, and you experience God in this sense of and form of a pillar of smoke and cloud that's leading you in the wilderness. Think about if, if you're experiencing a burning bush and it's not burning up, but there's this voice that is coming from the bush. Think of it if, if you've experienced and familiar with the scriptures where there's a prophet who's standing and he wants to kind of see God and, and God comes in the sound of sheer silence as it's translated in Hebrew. And it's, it's the sense of like if we actually saw God's face, like it would be way, way, way too holy, too other. The glory would just, just melt our faces. And yet they were trying to figure out how, how do we actually talk about what God is like because this God actually rescued us from slavery and oppression when we were in Egypt. He did that. And God actually gave us this book and he gave us the words at which we could live our life. And, and you have in one sense this rhetorical question. And, and the art of rhetoric isn't necessarily focusing on the answer as much as the dramatic effect of the question that deserves the weightiness and urgency. Like, what is God like? And they have this just trying to find ways to describe who God is and what he's about and what he's like, while at the same time, as you walk through the scriptures, from the jump, God's just trying to get closer and closer and closer and closer to us. 
And what you'll see in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. You'll see that this question, what is God like? You'll see it just begins in the first three verses with eight rhetorical questions. It says this, who else has held the ocean in his hand? Who has measured off the heaven with its fingers? So just right there in that first verse, it's like trying to showcase the power of God. Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Or who else knows the weight of the earth or knows enough to give? <laughs> I'm reading off the back television and I've messed them up and now they're catching up to me. You're all like, what are you doing? Can't you read? I, that's why I have to have glasses. I'm reading off this television. Let's start back. Slow it down, Steve. It's okay, there's forgiveness when you make a mistake. All right, here we go. Verse 14, has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? So these eight questions, all trying to articulate in this art of rhetoric who God is. And I love just the answer, verse 15, no. For all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. Just think about this. The whole earth, that means you and me. All of the galaxies, everything. The language that they say is he picks it up as if it's like a granule of sand. That's how we compare to the holiness and the power and the reverence of God. We are just this. And sometimes I can think of myself as a little bit more important. And then I read a verse like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just like a, a speck to the power of God. Check this one out. Verse 16 is amazing. All the wood in Lebanon's forests and all Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The literature and language of that is amazing. He is so big, so mighty. If even if we cut down all of the forest and we took all of the animals and we made like the most epic burnt offering ever, it still would not do him justice for how great and mighty and powerful our God is. Verse 17, the nations of the world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes, they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. Good word. Verse 18, and here's the question. Here's the question we have to like wrestle with. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Now this word image is fascinating because if you're familiar with the 10 commandments, God says in the second commandment to never make an image. Not fashion an idol, but not, do not bow down to an image. But don't make an image of anything that you can just almost capture. And a few years ago, I was in Jerusalem, and I was celebrating Shabbat, which is uh, the meal on Friday nights as you kind of start and kick off the Sabbath. It goes Friday from sundown to uh, Saturday sundown. And, and there's this moment where I walked into this apartment in Jerusalem, this family of five, and nothing was on the walls. And I'm sitting down, and as we're going through the prayers and the symbolism and the ceremony of Shabbat meal, the father says, is there any questions? And I, I, I not very wisely, but I asked this question. Um, do you have any um, wedding photos? 
Like I didn't, I, any, any photos? And they're like, no, that is an image. We do, not, we do not break the second commandment. I said, what? Because when you frame an image and you frame a moment, you can want to be back there and not be present in the moment for what God is up to. And this is what a lot of like Orthodox Jews believe. They don't, they don't have pictures. And so then my next question was, do you have an Instagram account? And they did, but it's different, it's different. <laughs> But, but, I, but I think it's this moment of like, you have this sense is anytime there's this sense of an image and every one of us, you look at all of the, the other nations, the other nations were trying to describe who their God was like through the way that they fashioned an image or an idol. Look what it says in verse 19. Can he be compared? Can God be compared to an idol formed in a mold? This is the created by human hands overlaid with gold and decorated with some silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that won't decay and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down. And, and again, all around Israel, whether in Egypt, whether in the, the nation of, of the, and the people of the Philistines or, or ba the Babylonians, the Persians, they all had these idols. They had these, these festivals where they would worship their God. And God was like, I want you to live in the tension that you can't contain or control me, which is really nerve-wracking for, for the people. He's like, I want you to trust me. I want you to follow me. And so many people, often, they can't live like that, and so they would shape and form some image to bow down. But I love what it says in verse 21. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God? The words he gave before the world began. Are you so ignorant? And then for the next few verses, he says this. God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. That's how small we are. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. He judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing. Verse 24, they hardly get started, barely taking root. When he blows on them, they weather. The wind carries them off like chaff. Again, just detailing the power. And then here's the verse, verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, asked the Holy One. And, and for all of the Old Testament, the Hebrew people are having to walk and live with this reality. Who is God like? Who can you compare God to? Who is an equal to Yahweh? What can you fathom that can even compare to God? And all they had was the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. All they had was the Ten Commandments, which were wedding vows. All they had was the 613 mitzvots, the sacred commandments in the first five books of the Bible that they had to follow and follow and follow, and they could walk in step and obey, but they did not know what God was actually like. And something happens. There's this 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for 430 years, the Hebrew nation had spent in slavery. And Jesus, around the age 30, becomes a rabbi. For 430 years, we all of a sudden begin to experience this teacher. This teacher comes, he lives, he teaches, he dies, he resurrects, and a whole new movement begins. And Paul says these words that I think are some of the most compelling words in all of scripture. 
And I, I think if you begin to understand this, you will recognize why Christmas is so important. As we live between the first advent, the first arrival of Christ, and the second arrival. Well, if we can hold this, and this could be like a mantra, an anthem for us, it'll change the way that we walk with the Lord. This is this in Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son, meaning Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning, the alpha, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, I want you to get this. This is so important. What Paul is saying here is that the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. What he does is he begins to answer this rhetorical question, what is God like? By saying, look to Jesus. I love how William Barclay, a famous scholar, says that if you want to see what God is like, look to Jesus. You will see everything. And I think for some of us, if we're really, really honest, we might be talking about God and, and people will ask all of these questions. Well, you know, and they're really asking what is God like, but they're asking like, yeah, but what about this in the Old Testament? And like, what about this? And what about this situation? What about this? What about this? And what if as a church, we could always say, oh yeah, 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 I, get, I hear that question. That is a good question. That's a beautiful question. That's a profound question. But let me just show you Colossians 1.15, that the son is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Have you ever questioned theologically, what, what is God about? What is God is for? What is God is against? Look to Jesus. Now, the word image in Greek is the word icon. And icon's a fascinating word. Because again, you think of the second commandment, God teaches his people, hey, don't fashion, don't form, don't actually do anything and create some image that you can actually like bow down to or worship. And I love, it's almost as if way back from the jump, God is preparing a people for the day that with great pleasure he pours the fullness of himself into one man, Jesus. And I don't know about you, but what gives me a ton of anxiety is Ikea. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what, I, I, need, I, I need counseling um, Anytime my wife and I are putting together a dresser together. That, because what does Ikea do besides make great meatballs? But what do they do? They hand you a 96-page instruction manual that literally makes no sense. And then they give you 4,323 pieces, and then this is what they're basically saying, figure it out. And so we try. And all of a sudden, we're trying to figure it out. And my wife's like, don't do that. And I'm like, well, that's what it says. That's not what it says. That's what it says. And then she's right, and I can't take it. And then I got to undo it. And then she's like, I told you. And I'm like, I know you told me, but I didn't, 
the directions don't make sense. I can't tell if that's eight inches or three inches or two inches. It's just a drawing. And so all of a sudden we put this thing together and it's terrible. I don't recommend it for anyone. If any of you are thinking about getting married, go buy a dresser, put it together and see what, what kind of <laughs> stuff comes out. It's the best wedding planning you can do. But here's, here's what happened a few years ago before my dad passed. My wife and I, we, we bought matching dressers and, um, for my son and for my daughter. And I did what I said I would never do. I went back to Ikea and I bought both of them. And, and I bought two and my dad was over and he said, oh, I love putting this stuff together. And I'm like, who are you? And, uh, and so we go down to the basement, and he opens up his box, and his box is all white, and, and my box is all black, and, and they're white dresser for my daughter, black dresser for my son, and, and so I watch him, and I watch how he does it, and I do it, and I watch him go, yeah, here you go, wow. and I watch him, and I do it. It was stress-free. It was like... Unbelievable, because I watched someone actually do it. It was so much easier. That wasn't shame. That wasn't the sense of like, go figure it out. There was a, there was a model. There was a, there was a way. And, and, and I, I think that for some of us, man, we've almost overcomplicated this book. Like, oh, what do you think about this? Oh, what do you think about this? And then we, we got massive words. Massive words, like theophany, which is an amazing word. It literally just means God appearing to man. And God appeared to man in a pillar of smoke, like I talked about, in a burning bush, in the sound of sheer silence. God appeared to man in, in a book. But really, for many of us, we were left just trying to figure it out. How do I walk in step and in tune and in harmony with God? And it was like dancing language. And for many of us, we're like, I can't dance and I'm not doing this right. And there was this, just this feeling. And then God was so kind that he sent his son. And the son is the image of the invisible God. That all we have to do is just watch how the son did it. And when we watch how the son did it, we go, oh, that's that's what God is about. That is what God is for. That's how God would act in our world today. And all we have to do is, as Jesus taught us, is to go and do likewise. Maybe this example might help. And I promise this will be my last sports reference of the night. Something happened, and let's, let's, let's just stay with College Station. Um, yeah, there you go. Oh, all right. Or you got a brand new coach, a lot of hope in the air. Love it. He's a good man. Michael, good man's good coach. Now, if any of you have seen the Johnny Manziel documentary, and this is pretty wild, is it's a fascinating documentary, but they, they say for Texas A&M, for College Station, that Johnny Manziel brought in over a billion dollars to the organization. It's just a billion dollars. Just watching him run around, the Heisman, all of the drama surrounding him. But really, he didn't see much of it except for some signing of autographs, but that's okay. We won't talk about that. But then, like, he didn't see much of it. The school got it. 
And, and for the last 25, 30 years, there's been all of this angst. It doesn't matter if it's Texas A&M. It could be Texas. It could be Houston. It could be Michigan. It could be Alabama. It doesn't matter. There's been all of this struggle to go, these players are putting their bodies on the line. Why are the schools benefiting from it? And so something became available that over the last couple years, we were watching it, something known as the NIL. And the NIL means the name, image, and likeness. And so what ends up happening now is a high school kid, let's say Arch Manning, can go to the University of Texas and they are evaluating what his name, his image, and his likeness is worth. And they're like $2 million. And he's getting paid to not play right now, but he's getting paid to go to that school and he'll become a brand ambassador for the University of Texas and they will sell his name, his image, and his likeness. And I started to think about this. The massive question is, what is God like? And God's NIL was, I'm gonna tell you, my son, that his name is greater than any other name and that my image, I'm actually pleased. I'm pleased to put in Jesus the fullness of who I am, and he in his likeness and he, what he embodies is gonna show the world what I am like. And all of a sudden, like, this book made sense because this entire book points to Jesus. On every single page, you can see the name, the image, the likeness of Christ. Even in the Old Testament, you can see how it points to the name, the image, and likeness of Christ because it was God's dream to get closer and closer and closer to rescue, redeem, save, and help every single one of us. But let's take it even farther. When you think about the first church, and you'll see this all throughout the New Testament, they use lines and phrases about the name of Christ. And they said that the church were a group of people who were in Christ, who literally attached themselves to the foot of the cross, atta attached themselves to the empty tomb, that attached themselves to a rabbi who was born in Bethlehem. They attached themselves, their one and only life, to the name of Jesus, a name that is higher and greater than any other name. And somehow, through the attachment of that, they recognized that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that their image, that we, undergoing a process of sanctification, that we were becoming more and more and more and more like our rabbi, Jesus, and how we acted the ways that we forgave one another, and we prayed for one another, and we confessed to one another, and we encouraged one another, and we loved one another. We spurred one another on. The ways that we embodied those one another's, we were actually living like Christ so that when people saw us, the church, the bride of Christ, they would see what Christ was all about. And when they experienced what Christ was all about, they would understand this is what God is like. And, and friends, this is so important because at Christmas, it's where we receive the reminder that God gave his son two names. The first one, Yeshua, God is mighty to save, God is mighty to rescue. 
and Emmanuel. God with us. And the gift that we have. And God being with us, being pleased to pour out of himself into the way of Jesus, we have an example. My, my son, if, if I showed you a picture of him, you would say, oh yeah, that's your kid. He looks like me. He just looks like me. He's got my nose. He's got my hair. He looks like me. A daughter. She's 10. Her name's Mercy. She doesn't know what that word means. She looks like my wife. She's got the eyes. She's got like the, the, the side profile. You, you see pictures of both of them at the age of 10. They look the same. And there's a sense of, of yes, I can tell that you are similar but just because you look the same doesn't actually mean that they act the same. And what's so beautiful for us is that the church at its healthiest, it's not that we look the same, but we're trying to live the same. To live with Christ, being exalted with our one and only life. And somehow through the likeness that we live with the, the same set of shared values, we actually believe in sacrifice. We believe in generosity. We believe in surrender. We believe that God is with us. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We live what we say we believe. And as we're living that, we are being shaped and formed more into the way of our rabbi. Because why? We're in Christ. And it goes this way, name, image, likeness. And it goes this way, likeness, image, name. And when we do this, and we receive that, people are going to see not just us, not just Faithbridge, not just Jesus. They're going to experience the heart of God on display. And this Christmas season, that's my prayer. My prayer is that somehow you wouldn't get lost in the biggest, heady theological conversations. You would just, you would just keep it simple. I got a guy who sits right here every time I preach in Chicago, and at the 28-minute mark, he just screams out, make it plain, Doc, make it plain, which is him saying, bring it to the streets, Steve, bring it to the streets. And here's, here, here it is. It's the simplest way is this. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. If you don't know the answer to some theology question, look to Jesus. If you want to know how to live your life, look to Jesus. You want to know how to love, look to Jesus. You want to know how to forgive, look to Jesus. You want to know how to actually embody the heart of God, look to Jesus. And any congregation I've ever been at who has been radically, radically moved and transformed and inspired to live more like Jesus, more and more people get closer to the heart of God. And in this Advent season, I imagine many of you know people who are wondering in their own ways, what's God like? Is God for me? Is God against me? Why is my life going this way? They've experienced pain or disappointment or struggle. And in this season, what have they experienced? The gifts of Christ. The gift of what Jesus brings. And what if they actually experienced the heart of God? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son and that you were pleased to pour out the fullness of you into this man. I thank you that none of us have to like go through our lives just trying to figure it out. 
getting frustrated that we just can't seem to see it and feel alone. But I love that every morning I could just open up my Bible and I could read a passage from Matthew or Mark or Luke or John and I can see how Jesus lived it out. And God, I pray that every one of us would just have a deep, deep desire to be more like your son. I love that you didn't just put it on us to just go figure it out and be like Jesus, but you actually sent the Holy Spirit. And that's a gift. And we have help that's gonna help show us the areas in our life where we're out of alignment or we're in alignment. It's gonna help us, empower us to be more like your son. God, as we live in this in-between of Advent, between the first coming and the second coming, I, I can only imagine people in this room or the communion venue who just have experienced profound disappointment, sadness, struggle. And maybe the holiday season is just one that's just more complex than usual. And I love that when I open up the scriptures and I look to Jesus, I see Jesus as someone who weeps someone who is safe, someone who can hold space. And God, I pray that even in this moment and in the days leading up to the gift of your son on Christmas, that they would experience your nearness. And God, I also pray that every single one of us, we would want more and more people to actually follow in the ways of your son, Jesus. And one of the greatest ways, and it doesn't make sense to me, but somehow in the Christmas Advent run, people's hearts are more stirred and open and able to imagine and believe. It's just the, the mystery of Christmas. I pray that you would begin to give us opportunities to invite, to make personal invitations for people to experience and receive the gift of Christmas in Jesus. I pray that you would just surprise us with how you use us to invite and to show our friends what Jesus is all about. Bless my friends and keep them. Be gracious to them and help us all embody the heart of the Father. We love you, we trust you, and all God's people said, amen.